Well, good morning, City Church. Uh, as has been uh, said a couple times, my name is David Richter, and uh, I'm here in a little bit of an awkward situation for me, which is I've actually never preached for my job before. So I get the opportunity uh, to preach for you, and then you get to decide if you want me to be your pastor next week. So a uh, little bit of an odd situation for me. I've never done that before. Uh, at the end of an odd year, we all know that. It's been a crazy year for all of us. Uh, so just to give you a little bit of an incentive, too, so you'll, you'll probably be getting about 20% more pastor if you decide to vote for me uh, because of this past year. Um, but uh, I'll just let you know, I, it is a great joy to be here. Um, uh, many of you probably read our bio a little bit and know a little bit about us. We, we know the neighborhood here a little bit. I've spent some time here. I've been around City Church over the years. I even had uh, the opportunity to be part of some of the, the initial conversations and hear some of them, not be a part of them, of when you guys were started. So it is an incredible joy to be here with you today, uh, to be able to open up God's Word and worship the Lord. And in this kind of already and not yet period of time that we're in right now between uh, me and you, I thought one of the things that we could do is just maybe dream a little bit about what the church could be and what the Lord is calling us to be. Uh, and I want to do that from this passage in Acts 11. Uh, and before we do that, though, uh, let's pray and let's ask God to be with us because it doesn't matter what we do, unless he's with us, uh, it doesn't make any difference. So let's pray and ask God to bless us. But Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for the fact that um, even though we don't deserve even to come into your presence today, that because of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done, that he has opened up the way that we can come into your presence, that we can worship you even today. And Father, I pray that you would remember your promises as we do so, uh, both for those who are here and joining with us online, that you would pour your spirit about us upon us. Lord, that you would fill us uh, with the joy of your salvation, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond to the good news of your gospel. And oh Lord, that you would transform us by your grace even this day. Father, we long for this, um, and we long uh, for your presence, and we pray that you would bless us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, the, the reason I chose this passage this morning is because this is a, this is a fascinating church in the history uh, of, of all of Christian history. Uh, it's a wonderful church. And the context, just to give you a little bit of a context of this church and why it's so interesting, why it's so important, why it's so fascinating, is that what we see here in this passage is that there's a dispersion that is broken out uh, after the stoning of Stephen, uh, a couple chapters back. And, uh, and in this, uh, you see that there was kind of a spread of Christianity out of Jerusalem. This is the Lord's way to actually begin to spread the faith out of Jerusalem into the surrounding regions. And it says here that it went as far as Phoenicia, which is modern-day Syria, uh, up to Cyprus, which is an island off the coast of modern-day Turkey, and then to Antioch. And Antioch is a really interesting city because it was a city uh, that was the third largest city in the world at the time. Uh, it was, uh, had a population of just over 500,000, may not seem really huge to us today, but at that time it was enormous. Uh, uh, it was the world's, one of the world's most uh, first and, and truly cosmopolitan cities. Uh, it was uh, situated right on the crossroads of the east and the west, and therefore it was a center for business and for trade, for diplomatic negotiations. Uh, it had great ethnic diversity. Uh, there were uh, populations that existed there who were Jewish and Syrian and Greek and Latin and Indian and Roman and African. Uh, so you had people from all over the world coming into the city. Uh, it was a center for religion. There were temples there to Apollos and Zeus uh, and all the pantheon of kind of ancient Greek mystery religions that were going on there. Uh, it also was known as a very morally corrupt city. 
Even among the pagans, it had reputations for incredible licentiousness, including the world's largest outdoor brothel that existed right outside of the city. So you kind of get a sense uh, of what is going on there. In fact, the city was so uh, morally corrupt uh, that the Roman historian Juvenile, uh, and the Romans were not particularly known for being all that moral either, uh, that he famously commented that on the moral decline of Rome, he said that the Orontes, which was the river that flowed in Antioch, had flowed into the Tiber, which was the river that flowed into Rome. And it was kind of his fancy way of saying that Antioch and the moral corruption of that city had come to Rome. Uh, so you kind of get the sense here that this city is huge and important and very corrupt as well. Uh, and in many ways, Antioch is the last place that you would ever think that Christianity would take hold. But it did. And what we see here in our passage is that Christianity not only took hold, it flourished. Uh, this church in Antioch became one of the most influential and culturally transforming churches in the history of the world. Uh, it was the launch pad for all Western expansion of Christianity. It was the launch pad for all of Paul's ministry to the West. This church is here today because it is a church plant of a church plant of a church plant of a church plant of a church plant all the way back to Antioch. Incredible, isn't it? And the faithfulness of the people and the Christians that live there. Um, and then the question that comes out of this is, why is this church, what happened here? Why was this church so important? Why did it have such an influence? And the three things that I want to look at this morning is this. One is that it was a witnessing church. Uh, secondly, it was a discipling church. And thirdly, it was a serving church. And I want to just look at these uh, in turn. First of all, if you look here with me at verse 19, what we find here is that after the dispersion, we're told that uh, a good group of people went speaking the word of God with great zeal for spreading the gospel despite any persecution that they felt as they went along. Um, but Luke tells us that as they went along, they were only talking to Jews. Uh, so you can kind of get a sense there that they were only spreading the gospel. They were only going to temples. They were only talking to the Jewish population. But one of the great shifts in all of Scripture happens here in verse 20. And this is really true. One of the great shifts in all of Scripture happens here in verse 20 when it says that some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch began speaking to the Hellenists also and preaching the Lord Jesus, and a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. This is the first time the gospel is going out into the Gentiles in a really powerful way. And you're seeing people come to know the Lord. And what we need to understand here is that the people that they're speaking to were true unbelievers. Uh, these were people that had no biblical uh, or Christian framework for understanding anything about the story of Christianity, about the gospel itself. Uh, they were truly unbelievers. But we are told that when the men spoke to them, the words of truth in the gospel that they believed, that they put their faith in Jesus, and that they were saved and came to know the Lord. And how could this be? How could it possibly be that these people that had no context for understanding the Scriptures uh, would turn to the Lord in this way? And what we get here, and the answer that we get, is incredible. It says that the hand of the Lord was with them. These men were willing to face, as they went and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, in the face of insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable odds, impossible odds, uh, they were willing to do this because they believed and they knew that the power of God was with them as they went. They knew that the power of the one who had raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead was with them as they went and proclaimed the good news. They knew that it was the Lord's power and not their own that changed people's hearts and drew people to him. And that's a glorious thing. 
Ephesians 2 says that by grace you have been saved, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And Paul says elsewhere that you know, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing that any of us could do. We, we think that growing up oftentimes in Christian circles that we have a better leg up on other people that may not have heard these things, but that is not the gospel. The gospel is that all of us are in the same place, and only by the hand of the Lord, the power of God, can actually transform our hearts and bring us to him. And the question that comes out of this is, why do we struggle so much if this is true with sharing our faith? Why do we struggle so much? Uh, you know, some of it's fear, right? We live in a culture that oftentimes people don't believe, and it's, it's scary to share your faith with other people because you might get rejected. Or it's the awkwardness of having those conversations. Sometimes it's busyness. We get so busy with our lives that, you know, we get caught up in those things, and we just end up not sharing our faith and, and think that that's not something that we need to do. And ultimately, though, I think that the reason we don't share our faith oftentimes is unbelief. We forget what it's all about. We forget the power of the Lord and how it acts in our own hearts, in our own lives, much less in the lives of others. Uh, there, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I, when I was little, uh, I used to watch on TV uh, the Andy Griffith Show. Some of you probably know what that is. Some of you may not. Uh, Andy Griffith Show was this kind of old-timey show. It was actually old when I was watching it, so you can tell how old it is uh, in general. Uh, was this story about this sheriff in this little town, I think it was right outside of Asheville, North Carolina, uh, called Medbury, uh, that had uh, this uh, sheriff called Andy. And he had this kind of like little uh, deputy uh, named Barney Fife that was kind of the comic relief for the show, right? So uh, Barney was always kind of doing stuff and getting into trouble, and Andy was kind of the steady, you know, sheriff, kind-hearted guy. And there was one episode that I watched that was really fascinating, and it, it was that this group of ruffians, this kind of like biker gang, had moved out to the outskirts of town, and they had set up camp. And Barney found out about this, and he decided that he needed to take care of this situation. So he went out there, and he walked straight into the middle of this crowd of ruffians, and he starts telling them, them that they need to get out of there. They need to pack up. Uh, they need to leave. This is not their place. And immediately when they heard this, there's kind of a pause. And then they just started ridiculing him. They started throwing cups at him. They started making fun of him. And they made him run away with his tail between his legs. And the scene that you get after that is that back in the kind of the police station, Andy's sitting behind his desk as he always did. And Barney comes in with his head down, just utterly dejected. And Andy asks him, what's wrong? And he wouldn't tell him at first. And finally, he dug it out of him what had happened. And Andy says, you can't, you got to go back. You have to go back right now. And he said, but they, they ran me off. They're not going to listen to me. And he said, no, 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 you have to go back. And so finally, he did. He went back. He kind of sheepishly kind of slunk up to the camp again. He kind of quietly walked into the midst again. And then kind of in a cracked voice began to say, you guys, you guys need to leave. You got to get out of here. And immediately, all of the people in the camp started packing up, and they looked scared, and they started putting everything away. And what you didn't realize, and what you finally find out, is that immediately when Barney starts telling him the second time, Andy had followed him, and he stepped out from behind with a shotgun. Right? We are all Barney fights. You know that? Nothing we can do on our own will ever change anybody's heart. The glory of the gospel is that God promises that he's always behind us. He's with us as we do. And if we trust in him, he blesses our efforts, and he does amazing things in transforming people's lives and drawing them to himself. And I can tell you this. I know a little bit of the history of the church. I know how much of a passion that Craig had for evangelism. I know how much he would tell you that you're supposed to barbecue in the front yard, not the backyard, right? I know when he would tell you uh, how much you need to get to know your neighbors and share the gospel with people. And listen, 
I don't want us to lose that passion. I want us to build on it. I want to find ways for us to kind of rekindle that joy and that wonder of what it is to share the good news of the gospel with the people around us. And I want us to become a witnessing church, again, that is beautiful and glorious, but is entrusting in the power of God as he goes with us. So that's the first thing I want us to look at. One of the wonderful things about this church and how we can be as well in being a witnessing church to the area that we're in. The second thing we want to look at here is not only being a witnessing church, but also being a discipling church. Um, In verse 22 in our passage, it says that the report of what was happening came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw the grace of God and was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose. And after he did that, he immediately turned back and went back to Jerusalem, right? No. What does it say? It says that he stayed. He didn't leave at this point. He stayed and began to teach the disciples and the young Christians who were in Antioch. Uh, But it was an enormous task to do that. And it says when he recognized the limits of his own abilities to do all of this and needed to be done, he went out and found Paul and brought him to Antioch. And they taught the disciples there for over an entire year. And together they began a disciple-making movement that built up this incredible church uh, into what it became. And many, many people came to know the Lord. Many, many people grew in their faith. Um, And what we see here is that this highlights a couple different things that I think are really important in what it means to be a truly missional, a truly God-centered, a Christ-centered church. The first one is it's not enough for us to lead people to the Lord and then to leave them there. The Scriptures, most notably the Great Commission, commands us to go and make disciples of all nations, to teach them everything that the Lord has called us and commanded us to do and to obey Him. And in this, we see that we must uh, be growing in our knowledge and understanding of the basic biblical truths uh, that we're given. We must be growing in our knowledge and understanding of the biblical story. We also must be growing in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel and how we grow in grace. The truth is that we struggle in these areas oftentimes. And this is not just this church, it's every church, it's my church. We all struggle in these areas often. Uh, First of all, in the basic biblical knowledge, recent reports from the Gallup Uh, research group show that while many Americans still kind of revere the Bible, uh, the vast majority of Americans have very little understanding about what it actually says or contains. Uh, And here's just a couple of facts that they have. According to their data, fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. The majority of Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. 70% of Americans can't name five of the Ten Commandments. A majority of adults think that the Bible teaches that most important thing in life is to care for one's family. 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Among graduating high school seniors, over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to the poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. And 82% of all Americans believe that God helps those who help themselves is actually something that the Bible teaches. And if you think that uh, born-again Christians did better on that point, you're right, by 1%. 1%. It's huge, isn't it? There's an enormous lack of just kind of basic biblical understanding about what the Bible teaches, says. But it's not just uh, you know, basic facts, it's also narrative knowledge as well. The Bible is not just a book of facts. It's a great story that tells us who we are and where we've come from, who God is and who we are, what's wrong with this world, why it's so broken, and what God is doing to fix that, and that how he has invited us to participate in that. What is our purpose? What is our meaning in this world? 
It tells us all these things within the context of a great story that it's not just this, this story that's outside of our, us, it's our story as well. And it molds our hearts and our minds to the reality of the world. A lot in our culture today about what is reality, right? What is true? This actually molds us to true reality in the great story of all history. And it's wonderful and it's beautiful. Our culture has all kinds of ways of thinking about, you know, different ways of what can make us happy and give us meaning and purpose in this world. And oftentimes you hear that Christianity is uh, regressive and offensive and unjust in that. Um, and the truth is, is Christians have a lot to repent of throughout history. Uh, I often talk to my church, I talk to them about what's the difference between being faithful and being a jerk, right? And we've been jerks a lot, and we need to repent of a lot of that kind of stuff. But the reality is, is that many of the narratives, most of the narratives, all the narratives, these alternative narratives, the reality that we find in our culture, they don't ever fulfill us the way that the scriptures actually do. You know, you talk about the sexual revolution that happened in the 60s. It promised great freedom. It promised great meaning, great connectivity, and it failed on all of those. We're not more free than we were then. We are not more connected to each other than we were then. It's failed. You think about uh, justice issues within our culture. Um, you get a lot of comments and ideas and narratives about what justice and freedom look like in that. But the truth is we are utterly divided and broken and separated from one another, aren't we? It doesn't work. You think about uh, the Christian story, though. Uh, the entire idea of human rights came out of Christianity. Did you know that? It's rooted in the story of Christianity. That concept did not even exist before Christianity came along. The idea of human dignity, why you should care for the rights of other people, that is all rooted in Christianity. All the conversations that we have about that in our culture are borrowing the car of Christianity to drive their narratives forward. Right? But it's not only that. If you think about the idea of, uh, of racial justice, the idea of why I should care about some other group and why I should sacrifice myself for the good of another group, I'm telling you, that did not exist before Christianity came along. If you talk about women's rights, there's a lot being written. There's a wonderful book called Dominion that just came out recently by a non-Christian who'd done an enormous amount of research about first century Christianity, and it talks about the fact that there is nothing in the history of the world that has been more freeing for women's rights than Christianity. It's amazing. When you think about the biblical view of sexuality, uh, we think about that in our culture as being really regressive. But I tell you this, the Christian view of sexuality is beautiful, wonderful. The idea of uh, self-giving love, of committed relationships where you know that they will never walk away, no matter what happens, no matter what kind of thing comes your way, that you are committed to each other in love for all time. Where does that come from? That comes from God's love for us. Right? And that's exactly how the Bible spells it out. We don't need a better story. We need to remember our own story. And then we need to remember how to tell it better to the culture that we live in now. And it's beautiful. We need to remember all these things. But it's not only that, it's also gospel knowledge. You know, one of my favorite, you know, I'm going to get a little nerdy on you right now. Uh, one of my favorite doctrines in all of Scripture is, is one that's called double imputation. I don't know if you guys know what that is. We'll talk a lot about it if you. Call me as your pastor. Uh, but it's the beautiful idea that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what he did is he actually took all of our sins, past, present, and future, and he put it on himself. And then he went to the cross and he died and he paid the penalty for that. 
And that is usually where we stop when we talk about the gospel, right? But that's only half of the gospel. The other half of the gospel is that all of his perfect righteousness that he lived while he was here, he actually took all of that perfect righteousness and he gave it to us. Now, when the Father looks at you now, he doesn't see you and your sin and your brokenness if you're in Jesus Christ. He sees Jesus' righteousness. So when the Bible talks about you being a good person or a righteous person, that's what it's talking about. And you know what the beauty of that is? When the Father looks at you now, if you're a Christian, Nothing you could ever do or say, both past, present, and future, could make God ever love you more or less than he does right now. Right now. All the talk of progressive Christianity or post-evangelical Christianity that's talking about getting rid of the atonement, getting rid of the cross, and it doesn't really matter, it's just a myth, that's not good news. This is good news. This is good news. This is what changes our hearts. This is what transforms our lives. This is what drives us to be the people that God has called us to be in this world. And we cannot forget that. Discipleship in this seems really difficult and hard, but it's not. And what we need to do is remember what God has called us to. What can we do? If we have any hope of being a church that God has called us to be in this world, we have to be a discipling church. And this brings us to the second point, and that's humility. We have to have the humility to admit that, and to lean into it. Discipleship seems impossible, doesn't it, oftentimes? And it absolutely is if we try to do it by our own strength and by our own power. We, like Barnabas, though, need to recognize the limits of our own abilities. We need to admit that we need each other. God didn't just save us individually. He saved us as a community, and he calls us to live out the glories of the gospel together. That's what the body of Christ is all about right? You may be really good at hospitality and really bad at talking to people about the gospel. Well, you know what? You can do it together and you can have a really wonderful and beautiful witness to people around you, right? That's what we're called to be and do. Discipleship is not an individual sport, nor is it a professional sport. I can't do this alone. If you call me to be your pastor, you need to know I need you desperately. If we don't do this together, it won't work. And it's not what God has called us to do. It's not a professional sport either. According to the Bible, every Christian is called to both be a disciple and to be discipling others. Keller, uh, Tim Keller, uh, I said this yesterday, so I, I hate to repeat myself, but Tim Keller talks about the idea that most churches are like going to a football game, right? Uh, there's, a, there's about 20-something people playing on the field and a bunch of people sitting in the stands watching, right? That is not what we're called to be. The glory of what Christianity is, the glory of the body of Christ is supposed to be is doing it all together by the power of God and the working of his Holy Spirit as we live out our faith in this particular community in a particular time. And the Lord, as we do that, promises to bless us in amazing ways. Wonderful. I know that your former pastor, Jeff, had a real heart for this. He loved discipleship. He loved to see people come to know, you know, grow in their faith. And I do not want to lose the passion of that. I want us to reclaim that. I want us to build on it. I want us to build systems and ideas of what a discipleship-making uh, movement would look like within the church. Uh, discipleship plans in which we uh, together uh, read the Bible together and grow in our faith and know and learn and, and understand the story and the basic facts of Christianity, and, and, we, and we, we just flourish in that together. There are ways for us to do that. I want to see us do that with our children and build a children's ministry that will pass these great good truths and wonderful things on to the next generation in wonderful ways so that they grow up knowing the truth as well. And we also 
we need this kind of uh, discipleship-making, discipleship-making movement that will actually build upon itself, just like in Antioch. And in that, we can see the gospel move forward with power by the Holy Spirit's working. But again, we can't stop there. The last thing that I want us to look at this morning is not only to be a witnessing church and a discipling church, but we also need to be a serving church. If you look here with me at verses 27 through 30, it says here that a prophet came from Jerusalem and proclaimed that there was going to be a great famine that was going to hit the land. And Luke tells us that the disciples at Antioch decided to send relief by the brothers living in Judea and everyone according to his own ability. So they, t- they took up a great uh, you know, collection and they gave it to Barnabas and they gave it to Paul and they took it as a relief effort. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his famous pastor, uh, uh, once said, that was, he was kind of in his commentary on this passage, that this is the very first cross-cultural, cross-ethnic relief effort in the history of the world. Think about that. And we know from church history that this is not the end of their service. Uh, if you think about population density, I'm going to nerd out on you again. Population density. Uh, so I, I looked it up this past week. Nashville has a popula- an average population density of about 2.2 to 3 people per acre. Kind of makes sense. It's a little bit more spread out. Boston, uh, or Na- Boston has 20 people per acre on average. Somerville, which is my little city in Boston, has 30 people per acre. It's the most densely populated city in New England. Manhattan has 100 people per acre, and that's because 98% of their buildings are more, more than seven stories tall. Antioch had 200 people per anchor, no high-rises, no septic systems. And it led to great sickness and disease in the city on a regular basis. And the people used to throw their sick out. We know this from church history. The people used to throw their sick out in the street in order to keep from getting sick and dying. And the Christians began to take them in, even at the expense and the cost of their own health. And when the pandemics hit, even at the cost and the expense of their own lives, oftentimes. And this led uh, Julian the Apostate, uh, who was a famous Roman uh, commentary, to complain that he could not stop the spread of Christianity because the Galileans were caring for the Romans poor and sick in addition to their own. A faithful Christian presence in this world must be marked by an intentional and sustained efforts of sacrificial service and mercy in this world. But it can't just stop there. It also has to be marked by intentional and sustained efforts of justice and reconciliation as well. Antioch was a city that was literally segregated by walls. Their neighborhoods, if you look at the historic records, they they were built with walls that separated the different neighborhoods. And the reason for this is that there was great racial tension. There was great cultural tension that existed and strife in the city all the time. And so the way that they handled that is that literally built walls between their neighborhoods to keep each other separated. And in Acts, and in Acts 13, chapter just about to come up, we're given this glorious little passage that most people just look over. But it gives a list of the elders at Antioch, and it consists of five men from five different ethnic backgrounds representing four different continents. It's amazing did not exist in the world at that time. How could that possibly be? It's the power of the gospel. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus himself is our peace. And that he made us one by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that separates us from one another. You know, I know that this church was built on the foundation of wanting to be a church of mercy and justice, 
of racial reconciliation and, and cultural engagement, right? I do not want to lose that passion. I want to build on that foundation. I want us to become a church that uh, continues to serve and want to build and reach across aisles and break down those barrier walls. I want us to learn and do the hard work of understanding where our privilege comes from and how we don't see and understand the realities of the brokenness that exists in this world and how we ourselves have, have participated in that. I want us to see and to seek after uh, reconciliation and the hope of the gospel and bringing people back together and justice. I want to build local partnerships to do this. We can't do this alone. You know, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Isaiah 58, 12. And it says this, that God calls us to be together repairers of the breach. Isn't that beautiful? We're called to be repairers of the breach, and by the power of God and the working of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what he calls us to be as a church. Not just in word, but also in deed. Right? You know, one of my mentors used to talk about all the time that there are basically three kinds of Christians in this world. Now, I know all these analogies often break down at some point, but basically there are three kinds of Christians in this world. There are big-legged Christians, there are big-headed Christians, and there are big-bellied Christians. And the big-bellied one's a little bit awkward, but you, you can follow <laughs> along. So the big-legged Christians are typically your, your Baptists, and they love doing stuff, right? Uh, they get out there. If you, if you have a leak in your roof, they'll have a crew over there to fix it right away, right? You know, I grew up in, in the Deep South, you know, and the Baptists were all constantly doing stuff and building stuff and helping people out and doing all kinds of things that were really wonderful and glorious for the, for the gospel. Um, but oftentimes they would downplay the intellectual aspect of Christianity, and they would downplay the feelings aspect of Christianity. Um, on the other hand, the big-headed Christians, and I'll, I'll leave it to your imagination who the big-headed Christians typically are, um, they are ones who love the idea of discipleship. They love the idea of theology. They love the idea of study and learning and growing in our knowledge and understanding. Uh, but they do so oftentimes at neglect of doing and also in, in uh, the, the kind of the feelings-oriented witness aspect of the gospel. But then you have the big belly Christian. These are often the charismatics, right? They love experience. They love beauty. They love uh, clinging to the wonder of the relational dynamics of what it means to be in relationship with the Lord. Uh, but they also, uh, and they love witnessing because of that. The church that is spreading most rapidly around the world right now is the, is the charismatic church. Uh, but they often do that by, by downplaying the intellectual aspect of things and also the doing aspect. Let me tell you something. When we hold these three things together, something truly amazing starts to happen. People begin to sit up and take notice. In verse 26, it says that this was the first place that the disciples were called Christians, Christ ones. The people could not easily categorize them anymore. They couldn't just lump them in with the Jews or label them as just another sect along with the other religions that were around them. There was something deeply different about them, and they could not ignore them anymore. There's a famous uh, uh, missionary called Samuel Ironsides, who was a missionary in New Zealand, um, and he, in his writing, talks about holding the balance of these things together. And as he did so, and as he lived out uh, and did his ministry, uh, the people there famously began to call him Yasuyan, Jesus man. Right? Is this how we're known? Are we labeled because of these things by the mark of our Savior, by the name of our Savior? Do people know us as being Jesus people? You know, um, 
Miroslav Volf, who's a famous uh, uh, theologian and philosopher at Yale University, talks about the idea of what it means to have thick faith and thin faith in this world. Um, and he says that uh, this usually works its way out in the power of systems. Uh, there are different rules for success uh, in work and at school and at your, you know, uh, in your family life and at church. And this leads to kind of a prioritization of our faith, a privatization of our faith. One, we're usually one, oftentimes one person at church, another person at work, another person at home. And, and, thus it li- it, uh, and we, our lives start becoming fragmented in this. I'm sure many of you feel this way. I, I can feel this oftentimes. And when this happens, we begin to buy into false gospels like health and wealth and prosperity, um, about instant gratification and comfort in our world. And Wolf says when this happens, our faith begins to idle, and we begin to fade into obscurity. The question is, what can we do about that? Um, Maya Angelou tells this incredible story. I don't know if you know who Maya Angelou is, a famous uh, African-American poet. Uh, she's wonderful if you want to read some of her stuff. Uh, she tells of a, uh, in an interview of the first time uh, that she met Tupac Shakur. Um, and it's a fascinating story. She says that she was doing a movie called Poetic Justice. And when she was doing it one day when she was on the set, uh, she saw this young man who was just spouting profanity like nothing that she'd ever seen in her entire life. And she was so shocked by it that she just avoided him. She just went around and got out of his way and went away. And the next day when she was on the set, she was there with a friend of hers. uh, And this same man was in a horrible argument with another man. Uh, and they were spouting profanity, and they were about to get into a fist fight. So this friend of hers that she was with grabbed one of the men, and she grabbed the other, which ended up being Tupac, and she took him over to the side. Uh, and this is what she said. She said, uh, uh, so uh, he, they grabbed him, and he said he protested strongly, but she wasn't having anything of that. Uh, she just stared him straight in the face, and she said, when was the last time that someone told you that it was all for you? Hundreds of years of struggle and oppression for you. Our people were kidnapped and beaten and raped and hosed down like dogs, sold into slavery and killed so that you might have life. When was the last time that someone told you that it was all about you, but it, but it wasn't all about you, but it was all for you? She says, in that moment, he began to weep. And so she took him aside into a gully and turned his back to the other people there and wiped the tears from his face, and she began to talk to him sweetly. She said, and she explained to him that his life was not his own. The sacrifices of the past were laid on the altar as a ransom price. You've been bought with a price, she told him, and now you must live like it. The Christians in this world, we need to be reminded sometimes that our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and we are being called to live like it. This is not a threat, and it is not a guilt trip. We can't save ourselves by gritting our teeth and cleaning up our lives. That's not the way salvation works. The obstacles of this world, most notably the obstacles in our own heart, are too great and impossible for us to overcome by our own strength and power. Therefore, no amount of fear or guilt will ever empower us to live out and become the things that the gospel calls us to by our own power. The good news of the gospel is that our God has done the impossible. Jesus, God himself, came, and he did the impossible in this world. He witnessed to you, he discipled you, he served you, and then he died for you. And in doing so, he laid on the altar the ransom price for your sins, and he bought you with a price. If you're here this morning and you are in Christ, your life is no longer your own. You are a Christian. 
a Christ one. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is the power of the gospel. When you come to see that God loved you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for you, your heart will melt and be transformed. All guilt and fear will be removed. And the motivation for your life and your witness and your serving will become your deep, deep love for Jesus. There's all Paul says, when you pray, what do you pray for? Do you pray that God would snap his fingers and convert your neighbors and transform this city? Or do you pray that he would transform you and strengthen you and empower you by his gospel to be used as tools for his kingdom? When you pray for this church, what do you pray for? that God would provide a new pastor to effectively minister to this neighborhood? Or do you pray that he would raise up new leadership and a new pastor that he himself would use to disciple and empower you and build you up so that we together might become the witnesses and the disciples and the servants that he has made us to be in this world? By the power of the gospel, this is the kind of church that I believe that he is calling us to be. God doesn't need us to do this. This is the glorious thing of the gospel. God doesn't need us for anything. If you ever think that God needs you for something, you need to kind of reorient you kind of your thinking about stuff. He's God, right? One of my professors in seminary said, you know, one of the greatest things in life is when you realize that God is God and I am not. Because you are a creature and you'll be a lot happier creature when you realize that that's true. But the beauty of the gospel is that even though he doesn't need us, he invites us to participate in his great rescue mission in this world. And then he empowers us to do it. And then he uses us in amazing ways to see our lives in our cities and our communities transformed by the wonder of the gospel. And we get to be a part of that. And I can tell you right now that uh, if it is your decision to call me as your pastor, I am so excited to do that with you. I'm all in. I can't wait to get started. But I'm always going to remind us, and I hope that you will always remind me, that it's only by the gospel that any of this is possible. Let's pray. Assembly, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it gives us examples of the reality of how you have worked and uh, your power has gone forth in history through your people and that we can learn and grow through these things. Father, And we pray that you would help us to learn from this passage, how we can become a witnessing people, how we can become a discipling people, how we can be a sacrificially serving people, not uh, because of anything in and of ourselves, but because you, we know that you've done all these things for us first. And as we uh, learn that more and more, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will knit these things upon our hearts and transform our lives and knit us together as your people and build us up for your service so that we can see the glory of what it means to participate in your great rescue mission in this world. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your word and to be together. And we pray that you would be with us now and bless us and be in work within us uh, for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.